In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. There's a lot to talk about this week. We had Janet Yellen. I'm going to spend a lot of time not only on the release of the official statement, but of course the Q&A that came later in the day. Also, all of the week's economic news will be discussed as well as the irrational or rational, I guess, depending on your perspective, market reaction to the economic news and more importantly, to all the talk at the Federal Reserve. But the walk will not match the talk. So people who are investing based on what Janet Yellen says If they don't reverse their positions at some point, they're going to realize that they've got it wrong because what she says and what she's going to do are two entirely different things. We got the highly anticipated Alibaba IPO. We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the big breakdown in the price of Bitcoin. I have been forecasting a big move down in Bitcoin prices. That has happened. I think there's more downside to go. Also going to talk about not only some crazy comment that I saw on CNBC, But I'm going to talk about uh, the even crazier email exchange I had with Joe Kernan following kind of the heads up email I gave him regarding what I heard said on CNBC. Also, we got the Scottish voting thumbs down, the nays beating out the yays in that election. So sit back. You're going to be with us for a while. We've got about two hours of content, the type of stuff that you're not going to hear anyplace else but here on The Peter Schiff Show. You make no friends in the pits and you take no prisoners. One minute you're up half a million in soybeans and the next boom. Your kids don't go to college and they've repossessed your Bentley. Are you with me? The revolution starts now. Starts now. We have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Turn those machines back on! 
you are about to enter the Peter Schiff Show. Show me the money! If we lose freedom here, there's no place to escape to. This is the last stand on Earth. The Peter Schiff Show is on. I don't know when they decided that they wanted to make a virtue out of selfishness. Your money, your stories, your freedom. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this morning, this is Friday morning, I am watching CNBC. This is early in the morning, and this guy is on there. I can't even remember the guy's name, and I suppose it's immaterial who it was. It's just another one of, you know, a, a parade of talking heads that, that is on uh, Squawk Box or whichever the show was. And Joe Kernan was the host. And so this guy is on there, and and they're talking about the problems around the world and the global economy and whether or not he's worried about how any of the problems, whether it's Europe or Japan, how it might impact the United States. And then the guy says probably one of the dumbest things I've heard somebody say on CNBC, which, again, I mean, that's pretty dumb. I mean, because most of the things that are said are, are dumb. But this guy said one of the dumbest. I don't know if it's the absolute dumbest because I can't you know, remember all the dumb things I heard, but it's got to be up there. So the guy basically says, would it be great to see the world growing faster than us and helping pull us forward? Yes, we're also the single most self-sufficient economy in the world just because we're so large and we have, you know, such a, you know, vast array of resources and, and, and things of that nature. So we're the single economy that if the world is a little bit sloppier or weaker, that we probably can, can do okay. The United States economy is the most self-sufficient economy in the world, the most self-sufficient meaning that we don't need anybody else, right? We can exist all by ourselves. We don't need any other countries. We're self-sufficient. Now, I mean, I almost fell off my chair because, of course, we are the opposite of that. We are the most dependent nation on the world. We depend on other countries like no other country. I mean, think about it. We've got the world's biggest trade deficit, right, which means that we depend on other countries to produce the products that we need, right? We can't produce them ourselves. How is that self-sufficient? If we rely on other countries to produce the consumer goods that we need, how are we self-sufficient? We also have to borrow the money because we don't produce enough to export to pay for our imports. We have to borrow money. We, we count on the world to vendor finance all the goods that we can't afford. So not only do we import the most, but we have to borrow all this money to pay for our imports. If we have to borrow all this money from foreign countries, how are we self-sufficient? We've got the biggest trade deficits in the world, the biggest uh, current account deficits in the world, and we're the world's biggest debtor nation. We owe more money to more countries than all the other countries in the world combined. How can you say you're self-sufficient when you're in hock to every other country in the world. We completely, like no other country, depend on the generosity of the rest of the world. We're, in economic terms, we're like the world's biggest economic parasite. How can somebody look at those facts and conclude that we're self-sufficient, that we don't need all the countries who are supplying us with all this stuff and lending us all this money? I mean, imagine if foreign central banks weren't buying any treasuries or any dollars. Where would we be? What would consumers buy when they showed up at Walmart 
uh, and, you know, and the shelves were empty. How would they even get to Walmart if it wasn't for all the the foreign cars or the foreign parts or components in American cars? Um, You know, our whole economy would implode if you took the rest of the world out of the equation. So how you can say that we're the most self-sufficient, you know, is beyond me. So I heard that. And of course, even even worse, Joe Kernan didn't say anything. It wasn't like Joe Curtin heard him make this asinine comment and tried to call him out on it. He just accepted it like, oh, yeah, sure. And they just went on and and continued to talk. And so occasionally I send Joe Curtin emails. I kind of think he's a he's a nice guy. And every once in a while he, you know, he says something that makes me think that maybe he's he's getting it. You know, and I, I kind of, you know, have a similar sense of humor to this guy. And I guess we grew up around the same time. And so I don't know, I kind of feel a little bit of a kindred spirit with him and you know i've met him a few times in studio i've always you know i always thought he was a nice guy uh in any event so um i sent him an email and in the email i said hey joe that's got to be one of the stupidest things i've ever heard anybody say on cnbc and i said that that's saying a lot i said how can anybody say we're the most um you know uh self-sufficient economy in the world and i gave him some of the examples i just mentioned here on this podcast and so Joe writes me back. And normally when I send him emails, he never writes me back. I know he reads them, but he doesn't necessarily email me back. Uh, this time he does. But instead of saying, hey, good point. Uh, hey, I, you know, I, I didn't think of that. He just totally ignores what I wrote. And he, he sends me an email that references an email I sent him about a month ago uh, that he never replied to. But obviously I know he read it because now he's responding to it. So instead of, you know, responding to what I just sent, right, he just says, can you tell me again how you actually coined the term Roach Motel? Now, he's responding to an email I sent him about a month ago when I was watching CNBC and I saw Joe Kernan talking about the Fed's monetary policy and Janet Yellen and the fact that we've got QE. And he actually said, you know, maybe it's like a Roach Motel. You know, maybe we can't end it. Maybe we're, you know, we, we can't get out of this trap. And I said, hey, that's, you know, that's my analogy. You know, I've been saying that for years. And so I sent Joe Kernan like an attaboy email. And I said, Joe, hey, glad to see you're using my Roach Motel analogy. And I said, you know, I first started using that way back in the beginning of QE, even before QE2, uh, because, uh, you know, I knew that it would never end. And so I kind of sent them that. And, you know, of course, I didn't say, hey, you got to credit me. You know, I... I, I, you know, you know, you're, you're violating my copyright. I just kind of said, hey, thanks for using my analogy. Now, I guess I did call it my analogy. So I was kind of claiming credit for thinking of it first. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that I did think about it first. But that wasn't the point. And I just wanted to let him know that I had been talking about that. Now he's kind of coming around and, and seeing the light. So he emails me and he says, you know, tell me again how you coined the term. And I'm so I'm not so I'm not sure. And so I reminded him, I said, well, you know, I didn't coin the term Roach Motel, right? I mean, Roach Motel isn't even a term. It actually refers to a product, right, that catches insects, specifically roaches. Um, And I also know that I'm probably not the first person to use the metaphor of Roach Motel, right, when it comes to other things where you could check in but not check out, right? You know, not necessarily, you know, catching roaches. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that with respect to the Fed's monetary policy, I am the first person to have described the Fed's monetary policy when it comes to 0% interest rates and QE as being a roach motel, a monetary roach motel. I'm pretty sure I'm the first one. I mean, maybe I'm not, 
But, uh, you know, I never heard anybody else say it until I heard Joe Kernan say it a month ago, right? Uh, and then he email, emails me back and he says, the first, the very first, you know that? People need to cite you when they say it in reference to the Fed. You are truly delusional. Now, of course, delusional. I'm not saying, I never said that people have to cite me. I just pointed out to him that he was using an analogy that I, that I, that I think I came up with with respect to monetary policy and just let him know that I started talking about it in 2009, uh, not 2014, when he's got around to it. Um, but, you know, and so then I, you know, I actually sent him a, a, uh, a link because then I, you know, I wanted to show him. So I Googled Peter Schiff Roach Motel and, you know, a bunch of things come up because I've used that word so many times. And the earliest one that I, earliest reference that I found in the Google search, I think it came up on page one or page two, was a transcription of a event that I participated in. It was a a conference, and I was speaking to investors in Hawaii uh, back in mid-2009, right? mid-2009, about 11 months before QE2, 11 months before they started QE2. And in that, I described the Fed's monetary policy as being a roach motel. I said that, you know, this is a roach motel, and, you know, they checked in, and, you know. So I, I said, look, here's an example of me using the analogy uh, and his only reply to me was, you're insane. Now, I don't know, is it because I'm emailing him or, um, you know, why, you know, I'm delusional, I'm insane, why? Because, you know, is it because I even believe that I was the first one to come up with it or that I bothered uh, to point it out? I'm not sure. But my whole reason for trying to let Joe Kernan know is that, look, I've been saying this stuff for a long time. The fact that, you know, we had QE2 and QE3 didn't surprise me. It surprised the hell out of everybody else, certainly on CNBC. And I think the reason I originally sent Joe the email and I mentioned to him in the email was because, again, we're all talking about Janet Yellen. And I'm going to spend a lot of this podcast on Janet Yellen and her testimony this week um, and, the, and the market's reaction and the experts' reaction. But once again, everybody expects that the Fed is done with QE and that it's going to raise interest rates. That is what they expected when they ended QE, the first QE. But instead of raising rates and normalizing policy, they did QE too. Now, that was a surprise to everybody on CNBC, but not me, because I was on CNBC and any other network that would put me on at the time saying it was a roach motel, meaning the Fed could check into 0% interest rates and QE, but it could never check out, right? I said it at the beginning, then they had QE2, then they had QE3. And the reason I bring it up is not because I want to make sure that every time Joe Kernan uses the word roach motel, that he, that, he, that, he, that, he, that he cites Peter Schiff. He doesn't have to cite Peter Schiff. I, don't, I just reminded him that I've been talking about it for a long time. And so when these other guests are coming on there telling him that the Fed is going to tighten, to think back to the fact that, no, they're not, because they didn't do it after QE1. They didn't do it after QE2. They're not going to do it after this QE, right? They're going to do the same thing. They're going to do another round because they're in that Roach Motel. They cannot raise interest rates or we'll be back in a recession. They can't raise interest rates or we'll be in a bear market in stocks and real estate, in which case we're in recession or the, the wealth effect works in reverse. So it wasn't simply to just 
you know, gratuitously pat myself on the back or say that, hey, you got to cite me. It's just to remind him of what I said and what other people said, because now those same other people are making the same mistake. They're making they're, they're operating under the same delusion that we can actually raise interest rates and unwind the balance sheet when we cannot do it. But, you know, Kernan doesn't want to focus on that. And for some reason, these guys at CNBC and other, you know, never want to give me credit for anything. You know, you'd think that maybe Kernan would write back something. You know, first he could have said, you know, something nice like, oh, great minds think alike or something like that. If he wants to, you know, uh, be polite or say, oh, I didn't realize, you know, hey, I didn't know that you uh, that you had that analogy. Right. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't copy you, although there's a there's a good chance that he got the analogy from me, right? Because later on, even after I showed him that I that I that I said it in um, in 2009, he just says countless people have used the metaphor, including me, and I guarantee that they didn't get it from you. Well, I don't know how many people have used it, at least with respect to the Fed's monetary policy, because other than me, the only one I've heard mention it now is Kernan himself, and it was you know I've been saying it so often for so many years. I find it hard to believe that Kernan never heard me say it, especially since I know I said it on CNBC. Uh, but maybe he never heard it. But the polite thing would be to say, oh, you know, Peter, I didn't know that you've been using that analogy. It just, you know, coincidentally, I thought of it myself. I mean, that would be, you know, a polite thing and just to let me know, hey, I never know you. But, you know, maybe it's like, you know, subconsciously you hear somebody say something and then you don't remember it and then you thought you thought it up. But again, you know, it's not, you know, People use this this word. I'm not saying that, you know, it's a good analogy because it, it, it you know, because it, it really conveys a point. Right. Everybody knows what a roach motel is. And so, you know, I didn't invent, uh, you know, using the word roach motel. But again, I don't think anybody else used it for monetary policy. Certainly when I did. And even if they came to the conclusion or decided to use the analogy more recently, you know, maybe they heard me, maybe they didn't, who knows. But I think he can at least give me credit by saying, you know something, hey, the fact that you knew about that, that you were saying that in 2009, hey, you know, kudos, I guess I, I guess you knew something we didn't. But they can never admit that, right? They never want to admit uh, that I got anything right because then it's like, well, gee, why don't we have this guy on our show? He got this stuff right. So I guess they, in order to defend their, the, the fact that they hardly ever have me on, they want to, you know, they want to dismiss all that. The Peter Schiff Show. All right, so the big story, though, from my perspective this week is about the Fed and their decision announced on Wednesday of this week to continue the tapering process. They reduced the uh, amount of buying of government bonds and mortgage-backed securities by another $10 billion per month. So starting next month, Instead of buying $25 billion a month of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries, they'll only be buying 15 And then, according to what the Fed has said, six weeks later, when they meet again, they will announce the ending of the QE program. And so they will not be buying any bonds. Of course, to say that they're not buying any is not exactly truthful, because they will still be buying, because Janet Yellen reiterated the intention of the Fed to reinvest all of their interest. And they have four and a half trillion uh, on their balance sheet. And if you assume 2% interest, which is pretty low, but if they're earning 2% interest on that portfolio, 
that's $90 billion a year in interest. So that's about $7.5 billion they have to do a month to reinvest the interest on their balance sheet. So they're doing that. So even though they're down to zero, they're not at zero. They're almost at $10 billion just in the reinvestment of interest. And that's assuming that they're only getting 2%. I mean, since the Fed has a lot of long-term bonds now, you know, the Fed owns a lot of 10, 20, 30-year treasuries, they might be getting a little better than 2%. Who knows? But uh, let's say 2%. But also, in addition to that, there are a lot of bonds that are maturing because the Fed does own a lot of short-term bonds too, and they're constantly maturing, and the Fed is going to roll all that over. So it's still a big, big buyer of treasuries. I mean, probably the biggest buyer in the world, even if it's tapering down to zero. So it's still in there. In, in a big way. But the Fed says that this official $85 billion monthly QE, that $85 billion is going to be down to zero sometime soon. Now, the big question is, how much time will transpire between the end of QE, the official end of QE, and the first rate increase? Because remember, interest rates are still at zero. So the Fed hasn't even begun to tighten yet unless you uh, consider a reduction in the amount of QE to be a tightening. And, and certainly the monetary policy is less loose, but it's hard to describe it as tight, especially when interest rates are still at zero, which is lower than they were at any other period in history when the Fed was being loose. So if the Fed is tight now, they're looser than they ever were, even when they were loose in the past. Right. And and so that's the big question. And a lot of people were wondering if the Fed was going to give a hint that maybe the time period between the end of QE and the beginning of the rate hikes would be shorter than what the markets generally believe, because all we've got to go on now is there's a statement that says that uh, the Fed believes that interest rates will have to be at zero for a considerable period of time after QE ends, considerable period. But there's no you know, definition of what a considerable period is. Now, at one time in one of these Q&As, Janet Yellen was asked, you know, hey, what is a considerable period? And she kind of said something like, oh, you know, six months. And then the markets freaked out. And then she backtracked and said, well, you know, it's not really six months, right? We don't really know what it is, right? So, they, but... People were wondering whether or not they would t remove that, whether they would take out that that language. And there are a lot of people that thought that they would, and they didn't. In fact, on Tuesday, the day before the the, the announcement, a Hills and Wrath of the Wall Street Journal, who's in tight with the people at the Federal Reserve, came out and said he doesn't think they're going to remove the considerable period language. And it turned out that he was correct. They did not remove it. Um, so it's still there. In fact, in their official release, they did reduce their assessment for GDP growth, right? So the Federal Reserve became less bullish on, on future GDP. They revised down their 2014 forecast from a range of 2.1 to 2.3 down to a range of 2.0 to 2.2. Um, and they lowered GDP projections, longer run 
they went down as well. So for this year and next year, they reduced their growth forecasts for 2014 and longer run projections. So they're a little bit less optimistic than they were. They also changed their language on inflation from saying that we've risen, you know, toward our a goal of 2%. They now changed it to, to read that inflation is running beneath our goal. And so to me, that official statement seemed particularly dovish because the Fed is saying that we think inflation is too low and it's a problem and we're less optimistic on growth than we were before. So you would interpret that somehow as as meaning that the Fed was even less, more of a dub than they were before. But then they had the Q&A. And for some reason, a lot of market uh, commentators or analysts were interpreting her remarks at that press conference as being hawkish. And of course, hawk is not a word that you would use in the same sentence if you're describing Janet Yellen. I mean, there's nothing hawkish about her. There was nothing hawkish about that press conference. Now, we did get a rally in the dollar that has continued throughout the week, and I'll talk more about the market reaction later in this podcast, but we did get rallies in the dollar, sell-off in gold, and maybe because that happened, people were saying, well, it must be because of the hawkish comments that Janet Yellen made during her press conference. But the reality is she didn't say anything at all that was remotely hawkish. In fact, you know, whenever she was questioned about their assessment, she always came back and said, it is data dependent. It all depends on the data. Yes, the Fed governors do anticipate raising interest rates uh, at some point. Uh, and and she even went out and, and uh, kind of outlined their plan for how they're going to implement uh, they're tightening how they're going to begin to wind down their balance sheet, right? How they're going to shrink their balance sheet. They kind of she talked about how they're going to do all that without actually committing to doing it in any particular time. But she did say that if they do it, it all depends on the data. If the data is as good as they believe it's going to be, right? If the economy performs as well as they believe, then they're going to do these things. But of course. What if the economy doesn't perform as well as they believe? In fact, every single question at the press conference, the only people that asked for her to make a comment about, hey, what if the data is different from what you expect? All the comments were, what if the economy is stronger than you think? Nobody bothered to ask the Fed, what are you going to do if the economy is weaker than you think? Because it's far more likely that the Fed has overestimated the strength of the U.S. economy, rather than underestimated it. But it doesn't even dawn on anybody there that maybe the economy is going to be weaker than what the Fed believes. But what Janet Yellen has said is that if the economy is weaker than they believe, then all of these forecasts are off the table. All of these, all of this talk about when they're going to raise rates and how they're going to shrink the balance sheet, it only applies if the economy is as strong as the Fed thinks. If the economy isn't as strong as the Fed thinks, well, then none of it's going to happen. And if you think about this, we've already been uh, in this expansion, if you believe it's a legitimate recovery, but, you know, looking at the, the government's GDP numbers, right? 
we've been in this expansion for over five years, almost six years. It's actually about five months longer than the average duration of a recovery. You can go back to the Second World War and you can look at all of the recessions and then all of the recoveries that have followed those recessions. And you can see how long it normally takes between the end of one recession and the beginning of the next. And we're already longer. This expansion is already longer than the average expansion, right? And the question is, how much longer is it going to go? How many more years do we have? One, two, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we're six months away from the beginning of the next recession. I mean, statistically, we're due for one. And I don't know why this expansion would be particularly long. I mean, it certainly isn't robust. It's one of the weakest recoveries we've ever had. In fact, the weakest. So given the fact that it's so weak, why should it endure for so long? You figure that it's so weak, it might uh, peter out, uh, you know, relatively soon. And considering it's already longer than the average, you figure it's overdue. In fact, there is a very good chance that before the considerable period of time, an undefined time period that even the Fed doesn't really know what it means, and I'll talk about that in a bit. But there's a very good chance that before we reach the considerable time limit, we're already back in recession. And that is the box that I think we're in. See, normally, five years into an expansion, the Fed has already raised interest rates many times. Right? The Fed doesn't let a recovery persist for five years, six years before raising rates. Right, It raises them much quicker. Uh, and it's all ready to start lowering them when um, the recession hits or the economy slows down. Well, the Fed began cutting rates in 2006. Right? That was the, the first rate cut. And it hasn't raised them since. All it's done is lower them and then keep them at zero. So it's been eight years since the Fed has even hiked rates. But if the Fed doesn't hike hike rates for another six months or a year, let's say, and during that time, we go back into recession. Now what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to raise rates? Well, how are they going to raise rates? We're back in a recession. Of course, Janet Yellen said that they're not going to do that if the data doesn't support it. And obviously, a recession would not jive with what the Fed's forecast is. In fact, if we go back into a recession, what's the Fed going to do? Well, they're going to stimulate the economy. And how will they do that? By cutting rates? Well, they can't. They're still at zero. So the only thing they can do at that point is to launch another round of QE. And it's going to have to be bigger than the last one because they always have to be bigger. That's what happens in QE. You always have to outdo the last round. The economy builds up a tolerance. you got to be bigger. So the next round of QE will be bigger than $85 billion a month. You know, the other thing that might force the Fed's hand is if the stock market over the next 6 to 12 months, before they start raising rates, on the anticipation of higher rates and on the end of QE, then the real estate market... Which And we continue to get negative data, and I'm going to talk about that this week on the real estate market. And I've been saying that, that that market is over, that recovery is done, real estate has rolled over, and it's heading down. Uh, and the stock market, you know, something like 47%, I read this, 47% of NASDAQ stocks are down 24% from their highs. 
So you've got a lot of stocks that are going down to fight this, despite the fact that the, the Dow Jones made a new record high this week, right? Beneath the headlines, uh, you've got stocks going down. And six months to a year from now, a lot more stocks will be going down if the Fed has ended QE and if people really believe that a, right, a rate hike is coming, that is going to let the air out of this bubble. Remember, every other time the Fed has ended a QE program, it has always been followed by another QE program. It has never been followed by a rate hike. I don't know why people think that this will be any different. And also, if you think about every time the Fed has artificially stimulated the economy, when they take the stimulus away, you get a recession. In fact, if you go back to Alan Greenspan, the reason, why did Greenspan, when he finally began to raise interest rates after keeping them at 1% for, you know, well over a year, almost two. Why did he raise them at a quarter of a point you know, every, every, six, every six weeks, right? They went up in this measured pace. The reason is because I'm pretty sure that Alan Greenspan knew at the time how dependent the U.S. economy had become to 1% interest rates, how, how dependent the housing market was to low interest rates. So the Fed didn't want to go cold turkey. The Fed wanted to wean the market off of its addiction to cheap money by raising interest rates very slowly. And Greenspan believed that this slow measured pace of rate hikes would be, uh, the market could withstand the transition and we wouldn't have a, a collapse, right? As long as we went slow. Well, he was dead wrong. In fact, not only was he wrong because, you know, we eventually had the bursting of the housing bubble and the financial crisis, right? So he was wrong. But by raising rates slowly, he actually made the bubbles that he was worried about pricking even bigger. Because of those slow measured rate hikes, the real estate bubble grew a lot more during that time period. And so when it eventually did pop, it was a bigger explosion and there was more collateral damage in the economy and the banks. Ben Bernanke and now Janet Yellen are making the exact same mistake. They, they got the economy hooked on QE. And then instead of just stopping it, right, they, they tapered it off. Same thing. They didn't want to do it all at once, like Greenspan. They just wanted to reduce the stimulus slowly, hoping that that wouldn't prick the bubble. But of course, it's going to prick the bubble the same way. But the most interesting part is that interest rates are still at zero. And I wrote this article about this, a commentary you can read online, where this is like the new normal, where now, instead of having a business cycle where you raise and lower interest rates, we now have an economy where interest rates have to stay at zero the entire time. And what the Fed does is change the amount of QE. Either it ramps it up or tapers it off. But during the entire time of the printing or not printing, they have to keep interest rates at zero because we're now so addicted to all the debt from all the prior stimulus that we can't even withstand, that even the slightest rate increase will send us into a cardiac arrest. So they have to keep interest rates at zero. The key is, when will people figure this out? The Peter Schiff Show. So we are talking about Janet Yellen's press conference, which followed the official release of the minutes or their official statement, where they basically said everything was unchanged. And most people, even just reading what they read, they were a little less bullish on the economy and a little more concerned that we don't have enough inflation, right? And of course, the, the, their main problem, apart from, you know, obviously not understanding inflation, is 
even though they reduced their growth outlook for the economy, they didn't reduce it enough because the economy is still going to be much weaker. And the Fed has a history of overestimating the strength of the U.S. economy. They've done that considerably, and they do it regularly. So I don't know why people don't completely discount it. In fact, most people, I believe, who are trying to guess when the Fed might be raising rates, they probably think they're going to do it even later than what the Fed seems to imply, because most private economists, I think, have a less optimistic view of the economy than does the Fed. Um, But again, I think none of these economists are pessimistic enough because they don't really understand the phony nature of the recovery. So they don't understand how quickly that is going to unravel. But one of the most interesting discussions was the one that Janet Yellen had with Steve Leisman, who actually asked the very first question. And he asked her specifically to comment about the considerable time. Chair Yellen, uh There was some debate going into this meeting about the phrase considerable time and whether it would remain in the statement. Was it debated at the FOMC as as, as whether or not it should be included? Because that that phrase was deliberately left in. You know, the Fed could have taken it out. And of course, the Fed inserted it in the first place. And they're very careful about the words they use because they know that people look at these things with a magnifying glass trying to discern what what the Fed might mean, right? So when they write the word considerable time, Uh, You know, they added that in for a reason. And the fact that they didn't scratch it out, they left it in for a reason. And then she says to Steve Leisman, she says, In terms of what the term um, considerable time means, the committee decided that based on its assessment of economic conditions, that characterization remains appropriate and it was comfortable with it. She still didn't answer his question as to what it means. She's just saying that we're, we're comfortable with it, that it's appropriate and we're comfortable with it. Okay, but what does it mean? You wrote it, you're comfortable with it, so what does it mean? I mean, don't you, don't you know what it means in order to have a degree of comfort? Now, you, you said, um, isn't this calendar-based guidance? So they're looking at the calendar. We don't know what a considerable period is. Is it six months? Is it a year? Is it two years? I mean, what's considerable? I suppose it's in the eyes of the beholder, right? I mean, anything could be considerable. I don't know. Is a decade considerable? I don't know, right? Who knows? The Fed is supposed to know, but they won't tell us. Uh, I want to emphasize that there is no mechanical interpretation of what the term considerable time means. So she's saying there's no mechanical interpretation. So what does it mean? And if you can't figure out what it means, why say it? What's the point of putting a word in there if you don't know what it means and nobody can figure out what it means? And even Janet Yellen doesn't know what it means. I mean, somebody wrote it there. What were they thinking when they wrote it? The committee, based on its assessment at each meeting, has felt comfortable saying that based on its assessment of those factors, it considers that it will be likely appropriate to maintain the current target range for a considerable time after the asset purchase program ends, uh, especially if inflation remains below the 2% objective. So I wouldn't describe that as I know considerable period sounds like it's a calendar concept, but it's highly conditional and it's linked to the committee's assessment on the economy. So what? But isn't it a time period? Isn't it a calendar? I mean, not like a calendar, meaning it's a specific date. Obviously, a considerable period doesn't end on 
an exact calendar date where they can tell you, yes, uh, 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 April 14th, 2015, that's the date that it ends. But it implies that considerable period can be measured as a function of time, whether it's weeks, months, years, right? Is it that that's probably what he meant by calendar, because he obviously knows it's not an exact date. It's a reference to time. And she's basically saying, well, no, it doesn't really reference any specific period of time. Well, then why have the language there? See, I know the I know why it's there. See, the Fed wants to have his cake and eat it, too. What considerable period really means is forever. You know, it's it basically means that interest rates are going to stay low, you know, indefinitely. But they can't say indefinitely or forever, so they just say considerable time period, and they never define it. Why? Because they can't. They don't want to raise rates. They just want to keep the market assuming they're going to raise rates. So they want to say conditional time period, so they never actually have to raise them. Because however much time transpires, they can still say it falls within the considerable period, because we don't even know what it is anyway. They don't want to tie themselves down. They don't want to commit, but they don't want to admit that they can't commit. Because that's that, you know, that that admission is something, you know, the, the markets can't handle that. Right. The Jack Nicholson, the markets can't handle the truth. So they're going to lie and they're just going to put in this word considerable time and cover their backs. So they don't actually ever have to raise rates. And then when they don't raise rates and when they launch another round of QE, they well, you know, we always said it was data dependent. Right. Well, the data changed. And so we changed with it. Right. We had it. We were forced to change. We didn't know there was going to be a recession. We thought it, everything was going to be fine, but this something happened out of left field, you know, 100-year flood, something nobody could have predicted, and, well, now the U.S. economy is back in recession. So what do you know? What a surprise. We can't raise rates like we were planning on. We're going to have to do another round of QE instead. So that's really why it's there. But, you know, another guy asked the question about the balance sheet, right, about how are you going to shrink your balance sheet? Because the Fed talked about in theory, how they're going to do it, which, of course, you know, doesn't matter what they say. They can't do it. It can't be done, not without a complete collapse. You know, the Fed's balance sheet is now four and a half trillion. And before the financial crisis, it was less than a trillion. So they got three and a half trillion in treasuries and mortgages that they got to unload. And, you know, whether they sell them or let them mature is really immaterial to the market. Because regardless of what happens, it affects the market. Because they try to pretend, well, if we just let our bonds mature, then we don't have to sell them and it's not going to be disruptive. Well, if they allow treasuries to mature, that means the federal government is going to have to repay the Fed the amount of those bonds. Where is the federal government going to get that money? They're going to have to sell a new bond into the market in order to repay the bond that the Federal Reserve is not rolling over. So you still have a big seller of bonds in the bond market, even if the Federal Reserve itself doesn't do the selling, right? Because it just means the Treasury is a seller. But the market still has to absorb the supply, and it can't. In fact, even though the budget deficit has come down, right, to, I think Obama's saying it's just under $600 billion now. If you actually look at the national debt, over the past year, it's increased by over a trillion dollars during the year where our budget deficit is theoretically under 600 billion. So where did the extra 400 billion plus come from, right? Well, it's all off budget. They don't count it, right? It's kind of like, you know, the way they do the GNP or the CPI. They, they, they just don't count stuff, right? Like the core, well, let's not count food. Let's not count energy. So when they're 
tallying up how big the deficit is. They just say, well, let's not count this money that we borrowed for this, or let's not count the money that we borrowed for that, because we're going to pretend that all these expenditures are off budget. And so by pretending that a lot of the expenditures are off budget, then they pretend that the debt doesn't exist. So they say, hey, we brought the deficit down. No, you didn't. You just stopped counting a lot of the debt that you're borrowing. But the national debt is still going up. We're still responsible for it. The government still has to pay interest on it, even if it's off budget. Theoretically, we're still on the hook to repay the principal. The holders of those bonds, you know, the bonds don't come with a special rider. Hey, you know, these were sold to fund an off-budget expenditure. So, you know, we really don't have to pay you back and we really don't have to pay the interest. There's no difference between the off-budget treasuries and the on-budget treasuries. So why are you going to brag about bringing the deficit down when you haven't even done it? You're just lying. But again, like anything else, nobody calls out the government when they when they when they cook the books to make the situation look better, like, you know, they do with the GDP and all these things that they're now counting. So some, you know, they they, they, they want to count things that they shouldn't count when it comes to GDP to get a bigger number. And they don't want to count things they should count when it comes to the budget deficits to get a smaller number. But if the deficits are a trillion dollars a year, right? And if the Fed has to shrink its balance sheet, right? Now, she actually mentioned in response to this question that she said, even if we don't sell, if we just let the balance sheet mature, right? We don't want to sell anything. We don't want to scare the markets into thinking the Fed's going to be a big seller, even though it doesn't matter because if the Fed doesn't sell, the Treasury has to. So it's a distinction without a difference. But Janet Yellen knows that most reporters or analysts are not smart enough or to understand that it's a distinction without a difference. So they buy, oh, good, thank God, no one's going to sell all those treasuries. We were worried for a moment that the Fed might sell. Yeah, the Fed's not going to sell, so the Treasury will. But she said, well, even if we don't sell any of our bonds, it could take a long time to get our balance sheet back to where we want it, back to where it was pre-crisis. She said it could take until the end of the decade. Well, first of all, it's going to take a lot longer than that because they do have a lot of bonds that aren't going to mature uh, for a long time. But assuming that she was correct, that they could shrink the balance sheet down to, let's say, a trillion dollars between now and the end of the decade, that would mean that they would have to get rid of three and a half trillion dollars worth of bonds and mortgages. So three and a half trillion, and it's probably more than that, because remember, they're still growing that balance sheet. They're still doing QE. But assuming it's just four and a half trillion, and you take three and a half trillion away, divided by you know, there's about five years left in the decade, right? Or 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. I guess if you count 2020, I think 2020 is the first year of the next decade. So you say we got five years left of this decade, pretty much. So that's going to be, uh, so 3.5 divided by five. So that's 700 billion a year. So the federal, the federal government, in addition to a trillion dollar a year budget deficit, they're going to have to, sell an extra $700 billion in bonds to repay the Fed. So that means the Treasury is going to have to borrow $1.7 billion a year, $1.7 trillion, excuse me, $1.7 trillion a year for the next five years. How is that going to happen? How could we possibly finance that? Where would interest rates have to go? How high would they have to go for the market to absorb that? And of course, for this to happen, right, the economy is going to have to not be in recession. Right, Because if the economy goes into recession, what is the Fed going to do? It's going to have to launch more QE. It's going to have to stop winding down its balance sheet and start ramping it back up again. So what Janet Yellen is assuming in this comment where she says, 
we think we're going to bring our balance sheet back to normal by the end of the decade is she's assuming that the economy stays out of recession from now until the end of the decade. And if that is true, that would mean that we are now enjoying the longest economic recovery since the Second World War. So Janet Yellen is betting that this recovery that is already the weakest one since the Second World War is going to end up being the longest lasting since the Second World War because she believes that she's not going to have to do any more stimulation between now and the end of the decade. In fact, she believes that the Fed can have the tightest monetary policy in U.S. history and it's not going to hurt the economy because there's never been a period of time where the Fed has shrunk its balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet has always expanded, right? And to control, so this is going to be the first time ever that we've had such a tight monetary policy that the Fed is actually shrinking its balance sheet and at the same time raising interest rates. So according to Janet Yellen, she's going to begin a rate hiking campaign, right? And she's going to bring interest rates back back up to normal, and she's going to pursue the tightest monetary policy in Fed history, where she's going to let. Three and a half trillion dollars worth of bonds mature off its balance sheet and force the U.S. Treasury to, to have to either slash spending, you know, on you know, because how is the Fed going to finance this? Right. They're going to have to slash government spending, raise taxes dramatically. Right. All this all these things are going to happen. And the U.S. economy is going to stay out of recession. It's going to miraculously just continue to expand for the rest of the decade, despite big tax hikes, big government spending cuts. Uh, a tight monetary policy. I mean, it's impossible. All of the things that Janet Yellen has to assume are going to go right to be able to believe that she could shrink the balance sheet down to to uh, to one trillion or anywhere near there between now and the end of the decade is absurd. It's preposterous. I mean, you might as well believe in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus as believe that. But the fact that she can say it. The fact that she could be so arrogant and so clueless at the same time to actually believe that she can do it. And all the people in the press conference, all the people that are trading currencies and bonds all around the world, they believe it too. That's how delusional the entire world is that they can actually believe this nonsense that Janet Yellen is spewing at this press conference. And she's, you know, the, supposedly the, the smartest of us all running the Federal Reserve. Can she really be that naive? Or is she just lying? Or is it a combination of both? Which is it? Either way, it shouldn't instill a lot of confidence in the woman or the organization that is trying to uh, steer the economic ship of state. The Peter Schiff Show. Janet Yellen got a couple of questions on the global economy, one of which she kind of ignored because it had to do with Scotland and uh, how they might vote. We now know, of course, that the Scottish voted no. But she was asked about Europe in general and, and, and about the problems over there and, you know, whether she was worried. And I thought one of the interesting things that she said is that, well, you know, yes, they've got a problem over there in Europe They've got very low inflation uh, that they have seen recently and uh, the decline that they saw in inflationary expectations and the slow pace of growth. Um, It is one of a number of uh, risks to the global economy, and we uh, certainly hope that uh, they will be successful in uh, seeing the pace of growth and inflation uh, pick up, and I think that will be good for the global economy and the United States. 
So more inflation in Europe, according to Janet Yellen, will be a positive for Europe and a positive for the U.S. And how that's a positive makes no sense, right? I mean, if the people are forced to pay more money for the things that they need, that certainly isn't going to improve the situation in Europe. Now, I would agree more economic growth in Europe would be good, just not more inflation, right? But the irony of the statement that Janet Yellen believes that what would help the U.S. economy is for more growth in Europe, uh-uh. The, the main reason that we, we have all this extra time, the, the reason we have all this extra rope to hang ourselves with is because of all the worries about the problems in Europe. I mean, that's what's been invigorating the dollar this last week. It's not a strong dollar. It's a weak euro or it was a weak pound or a weak Japanese yen that is supporting flows into the U.S. currency market. That's also helping the U.S. stock market and the bond market. Even though the bond market is falling uh, this week, it would be falling more if the dollar were declining. Uh, but because everybody is worried about Europe, uh, we benefit from those flows. If the situation became better in Europe, that's the last thing the Fed needs as far as trying to preserve the illusion of health in America. Because if the European economy picked up, or even if European inflation picked up in a measurable way, meaning that it was measured in their statistics, then the Europeans would have to start raising rates, something that the Fed can't match. So if the Europeans had to abandon QE and start raising rates, the dollar would tank. And U.S. inflation would pick up on, and pressure on U.S. interest rates would mount. That would hurt our stock market. That would hurt our bond market. Right. So when the Fed is saying she wishes, wishes them luck, maybe she's got her fingers crossed um, because maybe she knows it or maybe she doesn't. But the only thing we got going for us is that other countries have problems, too. Thank God for that, right? Thank God that everybody else is making mistakes because America benefits from everybody else's mistake because we're the currency that you buy when you're afraid of any other currency. Even if our mistakes are greater, even if our country is in worse shape than the countries where you're trying to sell their currency because you're worried about their problems. So we just benefit. As long as everybody has problems, then we can you know, survive. But the minute other people deal with their problems or cure their problems, that's when our problems really become big. So what the U.S., what the Federal Reserve wants is Europe's problems to get worse. And you know what? They might, because that's the one thing that maybe is a pretty good bet, that politicians will continue to make their problems worse. So I do not think that Europe is going to see a big increase in growth. But I do think they're more likely to see a big increase in inflation and maybe some growth that is being, you know, that, that is not real, it's a, it, but it's going to be a consequence of inflation. But the Europeans and the Japanese, for that matter, are going to be forced, whether they like it or not, to eventually tighten monetary policy long before this considerable period that the Fed is speaking about and writing about ends. And so when the rest of the world ends up raising rates and we don't, right, that's a big, big change. Because the reason the dollar has been rising is on the expectation that we're about to raise interest rates and everybody else is about to ease further with new QE. Like we're ending our QE and raising rates and Japan and Europe are just starting out on another round of QE. But the truth is we're just between QEs ourselves. We're not ending our campaign. We're getting ready to ramp up an even bigger campaign. It's just that none of the rhetoric is there yet. The Fed is still talking about the next tightening because they still think the economy is recovering. Well, when they figure out that it's not, remember they were still talking about 
fighting inflation, uh, rate, you know, back in 2006 and 2007, the financial crisis, the Great Recession wasn't even on their radar at that point. They didn't even really get, get concerned until, you know, late 2008, right? So they, they, they don't see what's coming in advance. So right now they're fixated on a future that's not going to materialize. They are ignoring what is actually going to happen because either they don't understand it or they're lying about it because they don't want to admit it because they're afraid if they admit it, they'll accelerate the process. And they're not about accelerating anything, right? They're all about postponing. Even if the postponing makes it worse, as far as the Fed's concerned, now is worse. Even if it's later and it's worse, that's better for them because it happens later, right? Any, any problem that you can postpone to a later date is a problem solved as far as they're concerned because they're all concerned about the politics of it here and now. And how can they make people happy right now? How can they keep the balls in the air? How can they keep the music playing, uh, the punch, you know, the alcohol flowing? That's what they're concerned about, not the hangover. They'll come up with some excuse, you know, why no one could have seen it coming after the fact. But they're not going to be the party poopers, right? They never are. They're not taking that punch ball away uh, because they, they want to be popular. Um, but I wanted to talk about another election. Again, Janet Yellen was asked about Scotland, and she politely said that she didn't want to comment on the Scottish vote one way or the other, or how she thought it might impact either you know, the UK, Europe, or the United States. She kind of punted on that one. Um, but what I think is a much more important election that Janet Yellen really needs to be concerned about, and I wonder if she's ever going to be asked to comment on it. Maybe not, because it's getting very little press. Now, I realize this vote is not happening until November 30th. So I guess in the media, that's a lifetime away, right? It's not uh, for another month and a half or so. But I talked about on, on an earlier podcast, and that is the vote in Switzerland on whether or not to return to a version of a gold standard and to require by law that the Swiss central bank hold 20% of its reserves in gold and that those reserves of gold be held within Swiss borders. Now, this is something that all central bankers need to be concerned about because this is a much bigger potential game changer than whether or not Scotland is a separate country. I mean, maybe you can think, well, if Scotland went, you know, independent, what about, you know, other countries? Might they want to break? But still, that's not as important as what Switzerland is going to vote on. And, you know, by the way, you know, I thought it was interesting that in theory, had the Scottish voted yes, right, Britain was going to let them leave. They were going to try to argue about who gets what as far as assets and liabilities. But the British said, if you guys vote to leave, we're not going to send the army in to suppress the rebellion. They said, we will respect the wishes of the majority. Now, I wonder what would happen if a state in the United States did the same thing. If a state said, hey, we're going to put on about a referendum as to whether or not we want to stay a part of the union of the United States, because we might want to be independent. And certainly for a lot of states, independence would make a lot of sense because their people would no longer be subject to 
U.S. income taxes or U.S. Uh, inheritance taxes, assuming that they can all renounce their citizenships uh, after the separation and be citizens of the new country, whatever the state may be. Uh, let's say it's Texas, right? If it was the the new Republic of Texas and it was an independent country, because they keep saying that, well, Texas is about the same size of the U.S. economy as Scotland was to the U.K., right? So if Texas decided we're going to have a vote, and if we vote yes, if fifty over 50% vote yes, we're our own country, and we're not, you know, we're not going to be, you know, on the hook for, you know, the national debt anymore or Social Security or Medicare. We're going to be our own sovereign nation, and we're not going to be bound by your treaties. And do you think the United States would be as cooperative? Would they be as understanding of the democratic process as the British? Do you think America, for one minute, would allow a state to secede? I mean, what happened when they tried that in the 1860s, right? We had the Civil War. Now, do you think we're any more civil now? Do you think uh, the U.S. government would just allow a state to secede? Because if they allow one to go, they're all going to want to go, right? So I don't think, I think we'd be saying, no, 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 we don't care what you vote. We don't care about democracy. I don't care how many Texans want their own country. You're stuck. You're in America, whether you like it or not. And if you try to become independent, well, you're going to, you know, you're going to, the Air Force and the Marines, we're all, we're going to invade you is what we're going to do, right? That's what would happen most likely. Now, is it possible that there could be a peaceful secession? Well, if there was, they're going to go like dominoes. That's for sure. I mean, most country, most states would be better off if they can get out from under the federal government. Um, you know, the problem, too, with the Scottish is they were arguing about having more of a welfare state than the U.K. Like, hey, let's be our own country because we can have more welfare, bigger welfare benefits. Right? What we need in the United States is a, a state saying we want to leave the United States so that we can be a tax-free zone, so that we can have freedom, so that we can have sound money. You know, all the talk about, well, will the U.K. want the pound? What good is the pound? I mean, will Scotland, you know, stay on the pound or can they be with the pound? What good is the pound? I mean, only if they want to keep borrowing money to fund a welfare state. It was all about, well, can they keep borrowing money? But if Scotland had said, hey, we're going to be we're going to have a balanced budget and we're not going to have a welfare state. and We're going to get rid of the income tax. It wouldn't matter what currency they used. They could use the pound if they want. They could use the euro. They could go back to a gold standard. It wouldn't matter. All the discussion about currency was all predicated on the fact that they would have to keep borrowing money to fund their social welfare state. But what if you have a U.S. state that says, hey, the reason we want to leave is not because we want more welfare. We don't want any. We want to be a free republic. We want to be a constitutional republic like America used to be. We want to go back to our roots. We want no income taxes, no inheritance taxes, no corporate income taxes. We want freedom. Right. If you want welfare, move back to the United States. Right. If you want freedom, stay here in this new country of Texas or whatever state decides they want to put it on the ballot. But I don't think that we would put up with it Uh, because, as I said, they'd all want to go, especially once a state left and things got so good and so many people wanted to move to that state. And then other states would put the same kind of ballot, the same measure. You know, interestingly, we wouldn't have the United States of America. Most of the states that are now a member would not have voted to join. None of, the, none of the original founding states, the original 13 colonies, would not have agreed to become part of the United States had they been told the truth back then about what the federal government would do and what it would become. Nobody would have joined this union. And now we're all stuck here. 
And I think we're only stuck here at the at gunpoint because I think if a lot of people had the freedom to vote, that there would be quite a few states that would uh, would in fact secede, especially if they really understood the benefits of secession. But I want to get back to the election that I think again is is the one that's so important, and that's when the Swiss vote on this return to the gold standard. Because this is what has broad-based implications. Switzerland was the first country to leave the gold standard, and maybe they're the first country to come back. And, you know, Switzerland has sold a lot of gold since going off the gold standard. Since I think since they did, they've sold off better than 60% of their gold. Meanwhile, their foreign exchange reserves have exploded with all the euros that they've been buying to maintain the relationship of 120 between the Swiss franc and the euro. You know, the reason that the Swiss didn't join the euro in the first place, the eurozone, is because they didn't want to give up the Swiss franc in favor of the euro because they, they, they didn't want a weak currency. Well, now they've adopted it by default. They've now tied their currency to the euro, even though they didn't want to. And the only people objecting now are the Swiss citizens themselves. Their bankers have drunk the Keynesian Kool-Aid. They believe in inflation. They believe in printing money. They believe in a weak currency. But you still have a lot of Swiss citizens that still remember the good old days, and they still equate Switzerland with sound money. And they've already lost their banking secrecy, you know, thanks to pressure from the IRS. Uh, so do they want to give up the sound Swiss franc, too? And now there's a boat. And the Swiss citizens can actually force the politicians and the bankers to do the right thing. See, normally you don't want to put things up to a vote because normally in a vote, you know, the people are going to want to do something stupid. But in this situation, it's the government. It's the people who are supposed to be smarter that are doing something stupid. It's the central bankers. And now maybe you'll have democracy doing something good for a change where the people try to rein in the runaway central bankers and save the franc and save their economy from all the inflation that is being created. But if the Swiss vote to keep or go back to this gold standard, then this is a game changer because number one, the Swiss can't keep buying all these euros, right? They can't keep propping up the euro. Number two, they got to buy a ton of gold. I mean, a lot, they're going to be a huge buyer of gold. In addition to having to go into the market and buy tens of billions 70, 80 billion worth of gold. Now they also have to bring back their gold that's being stored in other countries. Well, what about the custodians? How are they going to get the gold? Remember what happened when Germany tried to get some of its gold back from the Fed? They didn't get any. And then they stopped asking. They didn't want to ask any questions. They just accepted that it was there, even though we couldn't deliver it. So this is going to be very problematic. And if Switzerland goes back on, who's next? And who's got the most to lose when countries go back on the gold standard, the United States, because they're going back on the gold standard, that diminishes the role of the dollar. Right? So this election, this vote taking place in Switzerland, November 30th, this one is very important for the Fed. And you know what? I bet the Federal Reserve is watching it. They may be not discussing it openly, but this has got to be something that worries them. It's worrying all the central bankers, including the central bankers in Switzerland, because they don't want to act responsibly either. It's like, you know, they're at a party and they're drunk and, and the citizens are trying to take away the alcohol. They don't want that. They want to keep on drinking. Uh, but this is a big election. I mean, maybe maybe the, the, the referendum is not going to pass. I mean, remember, they had a crazy referendum on minimum wage, right? The Swiss were going to vote on the highest minimum wage in the world. It was going to be about $50,000 a year or something like that. And at least they voted that down. But this one, they should pass. Whether they will or they won't, we don't know yet. 
But this is a game changer if they pass it. And I wonder what, if any, press this election is going to get uh, between now and November 30th, if it, you know, if it will be covered at all. Because that's all I heard. The Scottish vote was, was, was big news, even though this vote potentially is much more important as a financial game changer uh, than whether Great Britain splits into, into two countries. The Peter Schiff Show. I haven't talked about Bitcoin in a while. I know on the Peter Schiff Show, I spoke about Bitcoin when the price first kind of broke below the 600 level. It had been trading around 600, a little higher for a while. And people were talking about, well, you know, it's kind of uh, stabilized here. And when it first kind of broke below it, I, I talked about technically, and this maybe not, you know, maybe when it broke below like 590-ish, because it was less right around. It was either a little bit below 600, a little bit above 600. And it was in that area, basically, from May, m- mid-May until mid-August. And then it, it broke down. It broke out of that range, and it got down, uh, maybe just touched just slightly below 500. And I talked about it then. Um, in terms of the technical breakdown that I saw in the Bitcoin market. And again, remember, I'm on record. I've said that I thought the market topped uh, in the in the beginning of the year, right, late 2013, when you had that big rally in Bitcoin, when Bitcoin got to over an ounce of gold, right? Briefly, one Bitcoin was trading on exchanges like Mt. Gox, which, of course, doesn't exist anymore, uh, but for over $1,200 an ounce. Or I mean, twelve hundred dollars of Bitcoin, which at the time briefly exceeded the price of gold, which was also a little bit over twelve hundred an ounce at the time, and that's about where gold is now. It's still in the low twelve hundreds, but Bitcoin this week traded below four hundred. The low that I've seen so far, and again, I'm you know I'm recording this uh, on Friday afternoon, so it could go lower, uh, you know, later in the day or by the time you hear this podcast. But so far, the low. Uh, this morning was 378.78, and that's the low uh, from Bitstamp. And as I record this, the price is 399, and it's down sharply on the week uh, because I mean, this week, last th- last week we were still uh, in the upper 400, so we've dropped what 15, 20 percent or so on the week. I mean, if this was a stock market, you'd say it was a crash, right? Um, but you know, it's not, you know, Bitcoin, you know, doesn't look at it that way, but this is a big decline. And so now you're talking about Bitcoin down from a 1200 plus high to now below 400. So Bitcoins have lost more than two thirds of their value on the year. If you just look at year to date, Bitcoins began the year around 800. So we're down about 50% on the year, uh, which means for 2014, Bitcoins are one of the worst, in fact, maybe the worst performing asset class, if you want to call it an asset class. And I remember last year, everybody was talking about all the deflation in terms of Bitcoin. Like, hey, if you had Bitcoin, uh, prices are going down for you. Well, this year, all you've experienced is a big increase in prices if you're buying stuff using your Bitcoin, because prices have doubled this year in terms of Bitcoin, right? So you're talking about massive inflation from that perspective as far as the impact on prices uh, in, in Bitcoin. And, you know, I'm reading online trying to figure out, you know, 
you know, what, what kind of coverage they're getting of the Bitcoin decline and how people are explaining it. And one of the, the laughable explanations, several people are trying to blame it on the Alibaba IPO, which we'll talk about. But they're, you know, the Alibaba, they're saying, well, people are trying to raise money for the Alibaba IPO by selling their Bitcoin. I mean, come on. I mean, first of all, almost all of the Alibaba IPO allocation went to mutual funds. Very few individual investors got those shares. Almost all of it went to these big funds. And the big funds aren't paying for their Alibaba with Bitcoin. So the first chance that any individuals had to buy Bitcoin was after the stock opened. And, you know, they priced uh, Alibaba at 68. But the first trade was 92.7. But the first time anybody could have bought it was this morning. Now, how many people who have brokerage accounts decided to pay for their, their Alibaba with their Bitcoins? I mean... I mean, even if you own Bitcoin, chances are you bought your Alibaba with something else. I mean, you don't have all of your net worth in Bitcoins. I mean, if you've got a Charles Schwab account, chances are if you want to buy some Alibaba, either you have some cash or maybe you'll sell some of your, you know, your Facebook or your Twitter or, or your Amazon. And you'll use that you'll use that money to buy your uh, your Alibaba. I mean, you're not going to use your Bitcoins. And of course, if you were going to use your Bitcoins, you wouldn't wait till the last couple of days to do it. You, you would have had to done it a week ago or two because you have to sell your Bitcoins, get your money, you know, fund it into your, get, get it into your brokerage account because those trades settle in a couple of days. So you wouldn't wait till the last day. I mean, everybody's known about this Bitcoin IPO for weeks. So if you were planning on using your, uh, your Bitcoins, not the Bitcoin IPO, the Alibaba IPO, excuse me. So if you were planning on using your Bitcoins to fund your Alibaba purchase, you would have sold those Bitcoins weeks ago. You wouldn't have waited until the last couple of days uh, to do it. So this is all, you know, the bulls trying to come up with what might be a plausible excuse to explain away why nobody should worry. Because, you know, it's just temporary. It's just, you know, it's all the Alibaba IPO. And so once this is over... Uh, the market's going to come back up. And, you know, maybe it's just wishful thinking, right? But it is not going to happen. I think the downtrend is very powerful and it will continue. Now, I I did see some people write about what I talked about. And I I talked about this on my radio show. And especially when I began accepting Bitcoin using a BitPay, when people can go buy precious metals from me. And when I first announced that we were accepting Bitcoins for gold, I said that I would encourage anybody who has Bitcoins to take advantage of that and exchange them for gold at my company. Because when we did that, you can buy over a half ounce of gold with a Bitcoin. Now you can't even buy a quarter ounce of gold with your Bitcoin. Um, and I, can t- I think that's going to continue to drop. But what I said at the time is that When it comes to merchants accepting Bitcoin, Bitcoin will be a victim of its own success. And what I meant was that as more merchants sign up to accept Bitcoin, that makes it easier for people that have Bitcoins to spend them on stuff. And every merchant who sells merchandise for Bitcoin, including me, the minute the sales are made, the Bitcoins are sold. They are sold for dollars. And if there's not another buyer wanting to buy those Bitcoins, the price has to go down. And that is what is going on. More and more merchants are signing up. And so more and more people are spending their Bitcoins. And so these Bitcoins are all for sale and there aren't enough new buyers. You know, meanwhile, you do have a lot of people mining Bitcoins too. 
and they have to sell the coins that they mine. And it's expensive to mine them because they got to cover their electric bills. And so the miners, are they all ramped up, and now they're mining and they're selling. You don't have the new buyers. Meanwhile, now you have something that you didn't have a year ago. You have lots of people with losses. More people who own Bitcoins are losing money on their Bitcoins, right? You do have people that got in early, right, that made a fortune. And they're still making a fortune even at 400 if they paid less than a dollar or five or ten dollars. But numbers wise, more people, I believe, are losing money in Bitcoins than are making money. And as the price goes down, these are more people who aren't going to want to be involved anymore. You have a PR problem because now they have a bad taste in their mouth because they bought Bitcoins and they're losing money. And I still believe one of the main reasons that so many people got in is because they wanted to get in on the action. It was greed that drove the market. People believed if I adopt early and I buy these Bitcoins, that when everybody else is using them, they're going to be very valuable and I'm going to get rich. Well, as the price goes down, more and more people are going to realize that they're not going to get rich on Bitcoins, but if they have too many, they're going to go broke. And so pretty soon, it's not going to be greed of wanting to get rich and not wanting to miss out, it's going to be fear, fear of losing your money, fear of losing your profits if you're one of the lucky ones that got in early, or wanting to mitigate your losses if you're one of the fools who got in late, right? So you're going to have all this selling pressure, which is going to undermine the appeal of Bitcoins even more, and it's going to be a self-perpetuating spiral. These are not the lows. I've been saying, and I said uh, when it first broke below 600, 580, 590, my price target was 350. That was where I thought the next technical objective, because that is the low for Bitcoins for uh, this year. And so I think if we get down around that level, 350, 340, whatever, there might be a bounce. Maybe we'll even bounce back up to 400. I don't know. Or though maybe we'll just go through 350 and we'll drop down to 250. I don't know. But I do believe that this downtrend is going to continue and that the people who are buying are going to lose a lot of money. Uh, and the people uh, who are selling, right, are are the ones that are that are doing the right thing. And you 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 can't just explain like there are people now that are saying, oh, this volatility is normal. You know, we had it before. You know, Bitcoin holders are used to it. Yes, there was a lot of volatility on the way up. You know, they went to a hundred, back down to maybe fifty, then up to one hundred and fifty. You know, there was volatility as the bubble was inflating. But this is different. This is volatility as the bubble is deflating. And remember, you know, as the, they, they had claimed, the Bitcoin promoters always claimed that as more people began using the currency, the volatility would go away, that it would stabilize. But now it's not. Now it's becoming even more volatile, even though more people. Now, another thing that I think could be causing the downward pressure, I looked on this exchange, Bitstamp, and I noticed that they recently began accepting stop orders, meaning that you can put an order to sell below the market. And I thought, well, you know, that's very dangerous in an illiquid market like Bitcoin uh, because, and a stop order means that you put an order lower down. Let's say Bitcoin is at 450 and you're afraid that there's, if it breaks below 400, it's going to keep going. And so you buy it at 450 and you put an order, a stop order to sell it at 399, at, at 399. Like, well, if it breaks 400, I want to get out. Well, if enough people put their stops beneath the market, the book is open. People can see where the stops are. And they can deliberately try to hit them. They can sell off the market to trigger the stops because then you get an avalanche of selling. The price drops and the people who hit the stops can buy back the ones that they sold and make some money. And it's called running stops. And that's what's going on in this market. And also the other problem for Bitcoin 
is you don't have enough shorts in the market. Like other stocks, you have shorts who then buy into the dips and that cushions the decline. You have short covering, but you don't get a lot of short covering in Bitcoin because there's not a lot of people actually short the market. I mean, they're pretty much all longs. There's not a, an exchange where you can borrow Bitcoins and, and go short. Um, so that puts even more downward pressure because you don't have the shorts buying into, into the market. So there, there, there's a long way down. And again, the other problem is a year ago, there, I mean, there was Bitcoin. There might have been a half dozen other digital currencies, something like that. There's now 500, 500 different digital currencies. Now, many of them have tiny market caps. But the point is that Bitcoin has a lot of competition that it didn't have a year ago. And not only does it have a lot of competition, it has uh, a PR problem because you have so many people who are now going to be telling their friends about all the money they lost in Bitcoin not about all the money they get, they made. Meantime, meantime, in order to make Bitcoins more acceptable to the mainstream, because they needed to make the, the, the thing bigger, they needed to get more people in on Bitcoin because they needed to keep expanding it. So there were newer people, right? It's like when you're, it's like a Ponzi scheme or a pyramid, you know, what a pyramid or whatever you want to call it. They always need more people. Because you need to, the new buyers have to be able to sell their Bitcoin to somebody else. So they have to keep growing the market, growing the user base for Bitcoin. And so in order to do that, they had to appeal to a broader segment of the population. And they had to make the Bitcoins user friendly to the governments and the banks. So all of a sudden, Bitcoin now, the transactions have to be reportable. There has to be licensing. There has to be monitoring. It can't be anonymous. You know, all of a sudden, using Bitcoins you know, becomes like using a bank. The government's going to find out. And of course, the government knows what's going on online. I mean, you look at how many people have already been busted uh, with Bitcoins and not to mention all the Bitcoins that were embezzled or stolen out of Mount Gox. You know, part of the idea was, hey, these can't be lost. You know, they can't be stolen. It's anonymous. The government doesn't know about it. You know, they can't, you know, you, you can you can maintain your privacy. So a lot of people free market guys, hard money guys that might have been attracted to the anonymity and the privacy that existed with Bitcoin in the beginning when it was kind of a novelty and just a few people were using it. Well, now that reason no longer exists because you don't have it anymore. So the other people that came in, came in to get rich quick. And now that they can't get rich quick, that they're just going broke slowly or now more quickly, uh, that appeal is gone. So I think all of the reasons that people were using it are going to go away. And this nonsense about, well, how easy it is to use, none of that matters. It's only easy to use once you own the Bitcoin. But once you own the Bitcoin, now you're subjecting yourself to a huge loss. And that's not easy. And if you don't already own Bitcoin, it's a lot easier to just use your dollars or your euros or your Visa card or your MasterCard than going in and buying Bitcoin and risking the fact that before you spend them, the market drops 10 or 20%. And now whatever you wanted to buy is going to be that much more expensive. So the wind is coming out of the sails. And, you know, I know I ruffled a lot of feathers in the Bitcoin community. And, you know, and again, you know, it's, you could say, hey, it's still too early for me to say victory on it, even though the price is down. You could say, well, maybe the price will be 20 million, you know, or whatever they thought, you know, maybe this is just a dip. So, yeah, I mean, it's possible that I'm wrong, right? It's possible. I can't, it's still too early. Now, at some point, when we crack 100, you know, maybe I'll be able to say I was right on this one. So I'm not going to do a victory lap or anything. I'm just, you know, I, I still believe that I'm right, but I can't, you know, declare 
uh, victory for sure. I mean, it would just, it would, I think it would be as premature as me accusing the people who think that the Fed's QE is a success by claiming victory now, by uh, Paul Krugman, you know, taking these victory laps saying, hey, I think, hey, I, I, I was proven right. He hasn't been proven right. So I think I'm closer to it than he is, but it's not 100%, right? I mean, it's certainly possible that uh, Bitcoin can still work and rally, but I don't think it's very probable. And certainly, I think the people that did rush in and buy these things for $1,000 of Bitcoin, $900, $800, $700, you know, a lot of those people are regretting those decisions. And I don't know that they're going to be buying anymore. I don't know that they're going to be telling their friends to buy anymore. And I think the people who didn't buy it at $700 or $800, they're not going to be thinking, hey, this is a great buying opportunity. I'm going to buy it now at $400. I think they're going to be saying, whew, I dodged a bullet. I'm glad I didn't buy that. No, there were actually some hedge funds. There was a couple of hedge funds that got in at around seven, eight hundred dollars for bitcoins. And um, you know, I don't think other hedge funds are looking to uh, to to join the party. You know, they're you know they're probably again feeling good about themselves that they that they didn't bite on that. Um, but as I said, I you know I, I made a lot of waves in the community. And look, I know there are a lot of good people who unfortunately had their judgment clouded by the allure and the appeal of what they hoped Bitcoin could become. And I, and I sympathize with that. But unfortunately, it couldn't work. And as much as people got blinded by the numbers, people thinking about how many millions or billions they were going to be worth when everybody went to Bitcoins. In fact, I even saw an article written because when they were writing about Scotland and what they were going to do for currency, you know, would they use the pound? There was actually an article that said, hey, why don't they, ju- they could just use the Bitcoin? That Bitcoin could become the national currency of Scotland. How is that going to happen? Like the Scots are actually going to denominate their pensions in Bitcoin. They're going to pay their workers and collect taxes in Bitcoin. That landlords are going to write their rent contracts. In. I mean, how you know naive can people be to actually accept that, to actually throw that possibility out there? But, you know, this is groupthink. People get so wedded to a narrative and they're so emotionally and financially invested in it working out that that's what people said to me. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter Schiff. He doesn't get it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. There are people that said, yeah, Peter, I used to follow you, but I don't follow you anymore because you don't get Bitcoin. Why? I mean, I mean, why, why is it a litmus test? Right. Oh, if I don't believe Bitcoin is a wave of the future, then everything I say is, uh, is worthless. I'm an idiot. I'm a fool. I'm a, you know, that, you know, People had those attitudes about the dot-com stocks or about housing market. Look, you know, I, I, I always knew that it couldn't work. I still believe it can't work because, again, it doesn't have any value other than the utility as a medium of exchange, which is worthless if it can't be a store of value. And just because uh, the euro has problems and the dollar has problems doesn't mean that Bitcoin is the solution to those problems. And people tell me, well, you know, gold doesn't have any real value either. It doesn't have any intrinsic value. Yes, it does. You can use gold. Doesn't matter. You don't have to find, you know, there's a use. You can make jewelry out of it. You can make, uh, you can use it in electronics. You can use it in dentistry. I just read an article about a cancer cure that uses gold, uh, particles of gold that are, you know, part, injected into the body or whatever. But there, you, you can't inject anybody with a Bitcoin. You can't do anything. You can't make a Bitcoin necklace. Uh, you can't fill your teeth with Bitcoin. You can't put Bitcoins in a cell phone and use it as a conductor. You can't put it in a, in a spaceship. It doesn't have any substance. And the fact that it's easy to transfer is meaningless. So are all the other digital currencies. They're all easy to transfer too. The question is, what are you transferring? If you're not transferring something that can store its value, it can't function as money, period. 
you know? And all these ways that people are trying to back in evaluation. Look, it's all the same kind of thing that happened in the dot-com bubble. Eyeballs, click-throughs, all kinds of crazy ways to say, hey, he, we found some new way to value this asset because it's a new economy. This time it's different. It's not any different. A bubble's a bubble. It doesn't matter if it's uh, the Keynesians who embrace it or free market libertarians who embrace it. They still are subjected uh, to the same emotions, and they can still be blinded uh, to reality uh, by the promise of something new, especially if they think that something new is going to make them rich. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, hopefully they didn't buy too many of these things, but a lot of people who had paper fortunes in Bitcoins who didn't sell any are going to watch those paper fortunes evaporate. It's going to be just like the, uh, you know, the people who, you know, who watch their dot-com fortunes. You know, there are plenty of people that work for dot-com companies that were completely believers. They never sold a single share of their company stock. And they watched it go all the way up and they watched it come all the way back down. History repeats itself. And I think that some of the early adopters of Bitcoins are going to experience the same thing. I'm trying to help as many people as they can. You know, if you're still holding these Bitcoins, do not go down with the ship. Go to my gold company, Shift Gold. If you got enough Bitcoins left to buy some gold uh, and do it while you can still afford it. Because at some point, you know, people that have Bitcoins want to be able to afford to buy any gold when the price is low enough. Right now, you know, you got 10, 20 Bitcoins, 30 Bitcoins, you can buy some gold. You know, at some point, you know, you might not be able to buy a pack of chewing gum with those with those Bitcoins if you can even get that. Ship Show. Well, we didn't actually have that much economic data that came out this week, but most of what did come out was negative, bad news. And remember, the narrative that everybody believes is that the U.S. economy is strengthening and that the Fed is going to not only end QE, but begin tightening uh, and normalizing interest rates and shrinking its balance sheet. And again, all of this is predicated on the Fed's overly optimistic forecasts for the U.S. economy. And so you would think the market would be more concerned when we get bad news. Yet the market seems oblivious to the bad news dismissing it as, well, it's a one-off event. Uh, We're not going to read too much into one negative data point. But it seems to me that we keep getting more and more of these data points, and nobody cares. And it's interesting, some of the only positive news that we get has to do with polls of sentiment. For example, on Monday, we got the Empire State Manufacturing Survey. And that's where they take a survey of you know, manufacturers in the New York area. And they asked them, how do you guys feel, right? How do you feel about your business, about the future? And it was a huge jump up, right? It was the, the index, they were looking for 15.9. And instead, we got 27.54. This is the biggest uh, number we got since March of 2011 on optimism. Now, of course, the last time they were this optimistic Back in uh, March of 2011, the index plunged by June of 2011 to the lowest it's been in the last four or five years, because my chart only goes back to June 2010 that I'm looking at. But it went from over 30, which was a little bit higher than what we just got, to almost minus 20. 
So uh, sometimes they can go from being very optimistic uh, to being very pessimistic. But people are optimistic because they just believe the rhetoric. But on the same morning, we got the industrial production numbers a little bit later, industrial production. And there, the number was well below forecast. They were looking for an increase of 0.3. Instead, we got a contraction of 0.1. And they revised the prior months down. They cut it in half from plus 0.4 to plus 0.2. And capacity utilization, which was supposed to come in at 79.3, came in at 78.8. And in fact, they revised the prior month down from 79.2 to 79.1. So there was optimism among manufacturers, but the industrial production of manufacturers actually went down. And in fact, it was a very big miss uh, relative to what expectations had been. It was a bad number. Uh, But the confidence is still there, even though the data to support it is not. People are holding on to... uh, the belief, it's the, it's the if you build it, it will come recovery. If it's field of dreams, right? If enough people hope it and wish it, then it's going to happen. We got information from the uh, mortgage applications, which were up a bit from the big drop they had the prior week. But the real negative numbers on housing came out on Thursday with the housing starts. And this was a big miss, both on starts and permits, way below what the consensus had been looking for. There was, I think, a 5.6% decline in permits and a 14.5% decline in starts. And again, if the Fed is building or its, its confidence in this recovery is based on the housing market, you know, the recovery is collapsing. The, the support is withering away beneath the, 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 the feet, the support of this recovery. Just look at the chart of housing permits, how it's topped out. It's rolling over. Same thing with starts. And the big drop in starts was in multifamily because multifamily has really been where all the action's been because people can't afford to buy a single family home. So more people have been renting. And also, a lot of the buying was coming from these hedge funds. They're out of the market. They're done buying. All the private equity guys, the Blackstones that came in there, you know, you had these companies that were buying up homes. They're done buying. They're going to start selling. They haven't started yet, but they got inventories of vacant homes that they can't rent. What are they going to do with them? Especially with interest rates rising. Interest rates have been creeping up. That means buying a house is getting more expensive because mortgage rates are going up. And again, if the Federal Reserve is no longer going to be buying mortgages, remember, for a while, the Fed was buying 40, 45 billion of mortgages every month. That meant if you originated a mortgage, you could unload it on the Fed. But if the Fed isn't buying them anymore, then if you originate a mortgage, you got to keep it. Or you got to sell it to somebody else, not the Fed, somebody who actually cares about the risk. 
And so if the Fed is not going to be the biggest buyer of mortgages, that's going to mean it's going to be harder for people to get a mortgage. So if the housing market is already weakening, imagine how much weaker it will be when the Fed is completely absent the market as they're threatening to be in six weeks or whatever it is, eight weeks, the Fed will buy, won't be buying any mortgages. And when 30-year yields or 10-year yields will be even higher. I mean, right now we're about 2.6% on the 10-year and maybe 3-3 on the 30-year. But those rates are creeping up. This is the highest they've been in months. And they could continue to rise. So as bad as these housing numbers are now, they're only going to get worse if the Fed continues to do not only what they're claiming they're going to do, but what everybody believes they are going to do. You know, another point on this concept of perception not squaring with reality, also this week there was a measure of home builder optimism, which also came out at a much higher than expected level. And it showed some of the highest optimism among home builders, I think, since 2007 or so. Now, of course, we all know how well that worked out, right? Home builders got very optimistic about building homes right in front of the real estate collapse. Right. So they don't have a very good track record of uh, of knowing what the market's going to do. They tend to be optimistic at peaks. Right. And pessimistic at troughs. So this may be another situation where that is the case. But again, even though they're optimistic, they're not building all the homes. The housing starts are falling. See, at least back then when they were optimistic in front of the housing crash, they were supporting their optimism with actual building, with housing starts. It wasn't, they weren't just talking, they were walking the walk. Now, even though they're pulling back on their starts and they're pulling back on their permits, they're still optimistic. So their own actions haven't swayed their, their, their optimism. Maybe they're pulling back personally, but they're still optimistic in general about the market, even though individually they decided not to build as many homes, not to start as many uh, construction. So they're, they're e even people who are themselves pulling back are reluctant uh, to give up their optimism because they're still you know, wedded to the narrative of the stronger economy. In fact, even on Friday, we got the leading economic indicators, which was, I guess, the last economic data point of the week. And that one came out at half of what was expected. Now, they did revise the prior month up a bit, uh, so you can say it comes out in the wash, but, you know, they took last month's up from 0.9 to 1.1. But this month is only 0.2. They were looking for 0.4. The, the consensus was 0.3 to 0.6. Nobody was as low as 0.2, and that's what we got. And what even is, may, could look bigger is the, 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 the collapse from 1.1 all the way down to 0.2. That's a leading indicator, supposedly. Uh, yet again, none of these, the bad data is, seems to be influencing the direction of the markets, which I'll talk about the currency markets, the stock market. I'd say the one strong data point of the week, the only one that really came out, you know, that maybe would be significant was the weekly jobless claims. And there, you know, we had had an upward trend these last few months were up. And in fact, they did revise the week before slightly higher from 315 to 316,000 claims. But this most recent week, 
it was a big drop all the way down to 280,000 weekly claims. That was way below the consensus forecast, which was 305. In fact, the low end of that forecast was 290. So we, we were below it by 10,000. So that, I guess, is good news if you believe it's sustainable. That is the fewest number of people filing for new unemployment benefits of the entire recovery or you know supposed recovery. But this is a very volatile series. I mean, that number could jump up 20, 30,000, 40,000 claims next week. So it's hard to really base much on a single week's uh, drop in unemployment claims. And again, I think one of the reasons that businesses are reluctant to fire people right now is because they're 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 preparing for a recovery that they've been promised, right? They all believe in it. They all think this big recovery is coming in the second half because that's all we talk about. That's all the Fed talks about. That's all the markets are focused on. The U.S. economy is recovering. Uh, the jobs are going to be there. The growth is picking up. We're getting ready to go back to normal. Interest rates, emergency is over. Uh, and so people believe this. And so they're not firing people. Maybe even they don't technically need them because there still isn't enough demand, but they're expecting it to pick up any moment. In fact, that is where a lot of the GDP numbers came from in the second quarter. It came from a build in inventory because companies are optimistic. Despite the fact that they shouldn't be, they are. They are anticipating a recovery because that's what everybody is promising. And in anticipation of that recovery, they are stocking up on inventory and holding on to employees. Now, if at the end of the year, as I suspect, that promised recovery once again does not materialize, uh, then what are they going to do? Well, they obviously have too much inventory. They're going to have to uh, you know, cut prices to get rid of it, but they're going to cut back on their future orders, which will affect future GDP. And they might let go of these employees that they were hanging on to, hoping that they were going to need them because then they find out they don't need them, right? So you're going to get uh, an ultimate, you know, reversal. You're going to get a pickup in the number of people who are going to be joining the ranks of the unemployed. And again, none of this is being forecast by the Fed. The Fed is... Uh, you know, looking for the opposite. So what is going to happen when the fourth, the second half is as weak as the first half? Remember, Yellen even admitted that, well, we, un we ended up with 1% growth in the first half, way, way below what the Fed anticipated. But, the, but Yellen attributed it to uh, temporary uh, anomalies. She didn't actually mention the weather, you know, in her press conference or speech. But obviously, we all know that the weather is one of the things she was thinking of. Uh, as the one-off, you know, anomaly, because I don't know what else was so, you know, that the, what else can they blame it on besides the weather? But whatever it is the Fed thinks interfered with the, with the robust growth in the first half, they assume that it's going to be gone in the second half. Well, why? Because if it wasn't the weather, if the weather was only a small part of it, well, then the other part of it is still here. And so I think it's still going to be uh, a very, very disappointing when it comes to the companies and the Fed. And so all this talk, all this planning, it ain't going to happen. This elaborate timetable, uh, the Fed's master plan on their exit strategy ain't going to happen. They, they can, they're never going to get to implement this exit strategy because they cannot exit. Right. Just like in the roaches cannot get out of that roach motel. I don't care how much they strategize. The best laid plans of those roaches, they ain't getting out of that motel. They are there.
They are stuck in there. There is no checking out. The Fed is in the same box uh, as as the roaches and the markets. Markets haven't figured it out yet. And I'm going to talk about the markets as well, uh, because I think that is the most significant thing to a lot of the investors that listen to the podcast is what are the markets doing and why are they doing it and how much longer are they going to be irrational? The Peter Schiff Show. Well, it's another strong week for the dollar, or maybe a better way to describe it, a weak week for all of the other currencies. The talk, all the talk about a tighter Fed and a hawkish Fed and rate hikes, this is emboldening the dollar bulls, and it is perpetuating the recent uptrend in the dollar, you know, the dollar index was back at 79. And I'm looking at my chart. When was it last there? In May of this year. And it is now just under 85. I think it went out the week around 84.86. That is just under the high from the summer of 2013. So it's, it is a more than a 52-week high or in almost. Actually, yeah, about a 52-week high in the dollar. It's not quite back to where it was in July, but it is where it was in September. So it's a 52-week high, but if we get above that July high, which it seems pretty probable that we will, the dollar index will be at the highest level since it hit 88 uh, in June of 2010. But remember, the dollar index hit 88 and change in June of 2010, and then was all the way down to 73 by May of 2011. So just because the dollar goes up doesn't mean it can't come right back down. I mean, probably the dollar went up because the Fed stopped QE and people thought it was out of the QE business and it was going to raise rates. And then when it had to launch another round, down it went. So I think the same thing is going to happen. In fact, the dollar index in mid-2012 got up above 84. And then later in the year, it was back down at 78. And then it rallied again. Uh, almost to 85 in June of last year, and then was back down at 79 by October of the same year of last year. So it didn't take long. The sell-off from 84 to 79 took about four months. So the dollar index has been up here before, and you know it's sold off because you have this false optimism in the currency markets, and these markets tend to trend. They get, you know, they start to they de- develop a life of their own for a while. They start to take the path of least resistance. They start to chew up the stops, and they draw in a lot of speculators. But the dollar was strong pretty much across the board, not only against the euro, uh, uh, the Aussie dollar, uh, the British pound. Even though the the Scots voted no, uh, the pound was still weak. Although on the week. Yeah, you know, the British pound looks like actually it might even be slightly higher. That might be the one currency that's slightly higher, although it initially had a big rally on Thursday night after the no vote was obviously winning. The pound rallied back above 165 and it finished out the day uh, just below 160, 163. So more than a two cent intraday decline in the pound. But it got below 161 earlier. I think maybe that was late last week that it got down there on, on worries when the poll first came out that, you know, that showed a, a slight majority voting yes. But, you know, the biggest loser on the week, I think, was the Japanese yen. I mean, the Japanese yen finished well off the session lows. But you look at the yen, the yen has lost probably since August, mid-August, 
So about, about a month, the yen has probably lost, let me see, six divided by 102, has lost another almost 6% of its value in a month against the dollar. Now, there are people that think, oh, this is good news for Japan because it means more inflation. Look, more inflation has not helped the Japanese. They're suffering the inflation that they already have. This, not, this new 6% drop in the yen is just going to stoke that fire. And so whatever problems the Japanese have been experiencing are just going to be exacerbated because this renews weakness in the yen is not good for the Japanese economy. It is bad. And, you know, even the Aussie and New Zealand dollars had pretty bad weeks. In fact, the Aussie dollar has dropped since earlier this month. The Aussie dollar hit a high at 94 cents. It's now almost at 89 cents. That's a five, five cent drop in the Aussie dollar. That's about a 5.3%. The Aussie dollar has been almost as weak as the, as the yen during that time period, despite the fact that their economy is in clearly much better shape. New Zealand, the New Zealand dollar is down almost as much, not quite as much as the uh, Aussie dollar, despite having really good GDP numbers. I think they had the best number in 10 years they released this week. Uh, New Zealand economy is in much, much better shape than is the U.S. economy. And their interest rates are already considerably higher. And I think the Reserve Bank in New Zealand is going to raise rates from here. I think they're about 3%. I forget the exact weight. But they're going to raise their rates uh, before the Federal Reserve does. So they already have a pretty good yield advantage relative to the dollar. And it's going to get even more in their favor when the, the Fed has to launch another round of QE. And these other countries are going to be tightening. Now, commodity prices were weak on the week. The, the oil was down. Gold gold also had a very bad week. Again, all the talk of a tighter Fed and the strength of the dollar uh, sent gold down on the week. This is the lowest price for gold since January. In fact, gold is very close to going negative on the year now. I mean, it's still positive, uh, but, you know, it's not positive by much. I mean, you know, it certainly could uh, could touch into negative territory. But again, I think that there's going to be a lot of buying because every time gold approached this vicinity, it got down here in late June of 2013 and again in December of 2013 and early January. And each time we had very substantial rallies off those lows. And my guess would be the same thing is going to happen if we retest those levels. Now, I know there's a lot of people that are looking for a big break and for gold to collapse because, after all, the Fed is going to tighten. The Fed has, uh, you know, has vanquished uh, the recession and there's no inflation to worry about. So the dollar is going to reign supreme. And, and so gold is going to keep falling. And if you buy into that fantasy, if you believe that QE has been a success, and that the U.S. economic recovery is real and sustainable and no longer needs the Fed. That the recovery that was built on the foundation of cheap money and 0% interest rates and QE, that this economy can now sustain itself. That the housing market doesn't need low mortgage rates. That the, the banks don't need cheap money. That the U.S. government could finance its deficits without cheap money. Right? If you believe all that and you believe that this recovery, which is already one of the, you know, above the average length of a recovery, if you believe that, that this is a real recovery, that 
The economy no longer needs the Fed's cheap money, that we don't need 0% interest rates, we don't need QE, that the housing market is on solid footing, that it could withstand normal mortgage rates, that mortgage rates can go from 3 or 4% back up to 5 or 6 or 7%, and it's not going to impact the housing market, it's not going to impact home prices, it's not going to impact the banks. If you think the corporations that are all levered up, that have borrowed all this money, it doesn't matter to them if interest rates go up. Because they, they're going to have so much more earnings that they'll be able to afford the higher interest rates. If you don't think that market PEs will contract based on higher uh, yields, right? and if you don't think any of this will depress the economy, if you think the U.S. government is going to get so much extra tax revenue from this boom that it's going to have no problem, no problem servicing the debt when interest rates move up and it costs an extra five or six or seven hundred billion a year just to pay the interest on the national debt. If you think that that's not going to be a problem, that it's going to be a cakewalk to finance that, right? If you buy all this nonsense, you know, and you believe Janet Yellen when she says that, oh yeah, we're going to wind down our balance sheet over the next five, six years. We're going to, we're going to let three and a half trillion dollars worth of more worth of government bonds mature and force the treasury to have to sell those bonds into the market in addition to all the ones they're selling already, and you believe the market's going to absorb that, no problem, right? And that this uh, recovery, even though it's been the weakest since World War II, is going to be the longest since World War II, that it's going to withstand the tightest monetary policy ever. Because even if the Fed only raises rates to 3 or 4%, that's a big percentage gain from zero. We would have never had the Fed raising rates by that much of a percentage. I mean, the only time that would come close would be maybe uh, the Volcker years when rates went all the way up to 20%. But percentage-wise, this would probably still be bigger when you're coming from zero. But the one thing the Fed wasn't doing back then was shrinking its balance sheet because that's the one thing the Fed has never done. The Fed's balance sheet has only gone in one direction, and that's up or expanded. We have never contracted it. So this is going to be unknown territory. And if you believe that the Fed can have a huge contraction, that it can shrink the money supply and sell off all these bonds and mortgages, and the economy is going to keep on chugging along like nothing's happened, because apparently that's what everybody believes who's buying the dollar, right? Uh, who's selling gold. Now, maybe they don't even bother to believe that, because anybody who thinks that out, anybody who puts two and two together, obviously this can't happen. But often when it comes to the markets, nobody thinks beyond the trading day, right? You don't, nobody bothers to connect these dots and try to figure out, well, if this happens and this happens, then what's going to happen next? And no one bothers to realize that the things the Fed are saying are impossible to happen. They just kind of accept it all at face value and don't really delve deep beneath it to try to see if what Yellen is saying can actually happen or if it's just talk. Because the markets really can't differentiate between talk and reality or action. It's just whatever makes the traders uh, buy and sell, whatever moves the chart in a particular direction. And then all the lemmings respond. And of course, a lot of people are on leverage. And, you know, whatever you believe, you know, you've got to do what the market tells you. Because there's that old saying, the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And what that expression is meant to convey is, look, you cannot fight the markets just based on what's rational because you could lose, because you can go broke before what you know is going to happen happens. That is why when I advise people 
on how to invest, I do not encourage them based on my ideas, right? I don't encourage people to just lever up, to borrow a bunch of money, to be in options, to be in futures, because I understand that the market can be irrational for a while. It is irrational. It's been irrational many times before. But ultimately, I believe that fundamentals do determine asset prices and exchange rates. It's going to happen in the long run. In the short run, the exchange rates are determined by idiots, regardless of the fundamental. They don't understand the fundamentals. But we use their lack of understanding. We, we use all the noise in the market to our own benefit. We buy what other people are dumb enough to sell. And we don't buy what other people are stupid enough to buy or we sell if we own the overpriced asset. And we wait it out. It doesn't matter how long it takes because we're not getting a margin call. We don't have an option that's going to expire if the event that we think is going to happen happens beyond you know, the expiration date on that option. Now, obviously, to the extent that you can speculate, if you get the timing right, then you can make a lot of money. But you can also lose a lot of money or whatever you put up um, if you get the timing wrong. And because I recognize that timing is a problem, I don't try to encourage people to gamble. Do it if you want, but understand the risks. But I think if you understand the fundamentals, right, then I don't even think it's gambling anymore. I'm, I'm, I, I think that if I know what the outcome is, uh, that my investments are not just, it's not just blind luck, right? I think I understand the economic rules, the economic laws, and so I, I have a pretty good understanding of the end game. I can't figure out all the moves to get there. You don't know exactly the path the markets are going to take to get from A to Z. But I just know we're going to start at A and we're going to end up at Z. And how we get to all the points in between, or which points we skip over, right? you don't know. Uh, and this is another example of irrational markets behaving irrationally. Now, it's not irrational, again, if you believe all the talk about a U.S. recovery and higher rates, then what's happening is not irrational. It would make sense. But people are believing in something that is irrational to believe. It doesn't make sense. Again, if anybody actually looked at the things that would have to happen in order for the Fed to do what they're threatening to do, you would realize that it is impossible, that they cannot do all this stuff without bringing the economy back into recession. It is impossible for the Fed to raise rates and shrink its balance sheet the way that it's suggesting it's going to during the timetable that it's laid out, we, even though they haven't identified you know, what a considerable period is. You can look at the forecasts that the Board of Governors are making about where they think various rates will be at various points in time. And it shows that they are anticipating that they are going to be raising rates over the next several years. When they start, we don't know, but that they will have raised them, you know, over the next couple of years, and they will raise them, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%. And if the Fed is going to let the balance sheet shrink the way she is forecasting, it is impossible to do that and the economy not to be back in recession. It is not possible. It is impossible to do that without producing a bear market in stocks and real estate. And since we know by the Fed's own admission 
that if there is a bear market in stocks or real estate, if there is a recession, then the Fed is not going to follow through with its commitment to raise rates or shrink its balance sheet because it said that its commitment to do so is data dependent. It's, it's conditioned on the recovery continuing, even though it can't. Just like my analogy, they're saying, well, yes, we are going to pull the table out from under the cloth, right? And we expect the cloth and the dishes to be suspended in midair. It can't be done. There is no way to remove all of the monetary supports for the recovery and for the asset markets and expect the asset markets to, to maintain these levels, to stay elevated. It just can't be done. But the people who are basing decisions on a, buying a currency or selling gold based on what the Fed is saying are not connecting those dots. They may be connecting the FOMC market dots on where rates are going to be, but they're not connecting the logical economic dots between what the Fed is saying it's going to do and what would actually happen if they did what they said. And so at some point between now and then, they're going to have to change. Either it's because the stock market and the real estate market roll over, right? And we develop a, a, a meaningful correction in the stock market in the broader averages, not just uh, in you know isolated stocks in the Russell and the Nasdaq, but you know the the, the S and P and the Dow, which by the way finished the week at a new record high. It went out at seventeen thousand two seventy nine seventy. Nasdaq finished the week on a down note, but it was up on the week, not a new record. Uh, same thing for the Russell, not a new record high like the Dow. But if we get a meaningful ten percent or more pullback that scares the Fed into believing that it could be a bear market then the Fed is going to uh, reverse course. And if the economic data, if the GDP date numbers and the jobs numbers continue to be negative, like the most recent number we got for August, that horrible job number that everybody is dismissing as an, as an anomaly, if it's not an anomaly, if it's the beginning of a new trend, then the Fed is going to have to uh, change its tune and the markets will be surprised and the reaction will be violent in their reversals. Also got to mention how the Alibaba IPO uh, panned out. Remember, I talked about Alibaba when they first floated the IPO about the idea that this company was actually, you know, where they were talking about pricing it was actually a pretty good value relative to the prices that people are paying for Facebook or Amazon or eBay or, you know, any of these companies. And they ended up pricing the stock at $68. And it opened trading on Friday. And the first trade, I think, was $92.70. So if you, if you got lucky enough to get in on the IPO, I did not. Nobody was going to hand me any of those shares. Of course, I would have taken them. If anybody would have given me the shares at 68 if I had enough friends on Wall Street that I could have finagled those, uh, yeah, I would have, of course, taken them because I was very confident that there would be a big pop, and there was. And it opened at 92.7. It rallied to just shy of 100, and then sold off. I don't think it ever traded below 90 uh, during the day. It closed at 93.89. So even if you bought the open, uh, no, the low was 89.95. So I, I stand corrected. It got a nickel below 90. But even if you bought the open, you still were a winner by the end of the day, 93.8. But I would not necessarily be a buyer now. Again, I can't give any investment advice on this show, 
And, you know, in the short run, sure, this stock could run for a while. You know, when people try to value it, it's interesting. They always say, well, relative to Facebook, it's, you know, not expensive. Well, nothing's expensive relative to Facebook or some of these stocks. I mean, when you compare one overvalued stock to another and say on a relative basis, it's a value. I mean, sure. But what is that? What, what good is that? Because eventually when the bubble bursts, all these stocks are going to come down. And what determines whether or not Alibaba is a fair price is not uh, relating it to some other bubble stock, but you have to look at it in isolation. What is a company worth? What kind of PE are you willing to pay for a company? And how real are the earnings growth? And I know, look, Alibaba is huge. It's bigger than Amazon and eBay combined. But because it's so big, it's going to have some competitive pressure. It's not going to have that market to itself from ever. More players are going to come in. The margins are huge. They have like 40% margins, which is really incredible compared to what the margins are for, you know, the U.S. Internet companies. But those big margins are like a big, you know, flag. It's It's telling capitalists, come take a piece of this. Get in on it. Right. Capital is going to flow. They're going to get competition. Right. And those margins are unsustainable. And so who knows how much risk there is in these stocks. Uh, but there is a lot of risk. But right now it's all the fanfare and all the hype. But the one thing that's interesting to me is that the biggest IPO ever is a Chinese stock. It's not an American stock. Why did they come to the, the U.S. to list it? Because they know that people, Americans will, will pay the most. Right. We're the biggest idiots. Uh, So if you want to get the most for your stock, if you want to get the highest price possible, sell it on the U.S. stock market, put it out on the Nasdaq, because that's where you're going to get the most the biggest price, Uh, which might be good to the extent that a lot of Chinese didn't buy it, uh, because ultimately, I think the stock's going down regardless of where it goes in the short run, because it can keep going up. Who the hell knows? Um, But. You know, the valuations of these companies, these Internet companies are unsustainable. Uh, It's all a bubble, just like the dot-com bubble in the 1990s. It's another bubble all over again. And some of those stocks survived, like Amazon, eBay, uh, you know, Yahoo, you know, know, nowhere near uh, what it was. uh, Yahoo, of course, big beneficiary of the Alibaba IPO as the largest shareholder, I guess, outside of the insiders. The guy who started it, by the way, started a company in 1999 in his Chinese apartment. He's a, he was a school teacher. He was making $20 a month, and now he's worth over $20 billion, right? And a lot of that has been realized. He puts a big check in his pocket. And by the way, the people that are buying this stock, they're not actually buying a Chinese company. They're buying a Cayman Islands holding company that owns shares of Alibaba. So all the control stays in China. The Americans just get to buy a piece of the holding company in the Cayman Islands. And, of course, why the Cayman Islands? Well, taxes, right? Uh, You know, so they're not, this is, you know, all foreign. Um, But maybe it spares, so maybe the Chinese mom and pops won't lose money when the whole Internet bust happens. They'll be able to buy the stock in the future, maybe at a less expensive price. (laughs) 
That's it for today's podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you are sharing it with your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter, and help me spread the word about the Peter Schiff Show in podcast format so we get more people listening on a weekly basis to two hours of economic sanity in what is really an insane world. 